This is Radio Sustain, a journal of fair trade, resilient rural communities, safe food, and a healthy environment, brought to you by IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. This edition of Radio Sustain is for Monday, February 22, 2010. I'm Andrew Rinaldo at IATP in Minneapolis. In today's program, we explore efforts in the U.S. to bring healthier food to children, First, we talk with IATP board member and former USDA official Rod Leonard about the origin of the Women, Infants, and Children program and its role in curbing malnutrition. Next, Rosemary Diedrichs, the Director of Nutrition for Minneapolis Public Schools, describes the development and implementation of the recently revised USDA Child Nutrition Standards. Finally, IATP's Local Foods Program Director, Joanne Birkenkamp, updates us on the state of Farm to School in Minnesota and how it all ties in to the Child Nutrition Act, which is up for reauthorization this year. In 1968, Rod Leonard, then an official of the USDA, helped launch the Women, Infants, and Children, or WIC, program in an attempt to address the variety of illnesses associated with malnutrition. The program has become more important than ever, feeding more than 9 million families per month in 2009. All right, Rod, let's go back in time to the origins of the WIC program. Maybe you can tell us what position you had at that time when it was first being thought of. I was the uh, administrator for consumer and marketing services which was a new agency at that time that was dealing mostly with food policy and food safety. As administrator, I had been invited to a meeting at the Public Health Service for the Women and Children's Bureau, and they operate uh, health clinics in urban areas, particularly inner-city neighborhoods. The meeting had been called to let uh, doctors and nurses from clinics around the, uh, the U.S. discuss the current set of problems that they were dealing with. The major, the major problem at that time, this would have been in 1966-67, were mothers and infants and small children coming into the clinics with various diseases, illnesses, none of which could be treated medically. Uh, the symptoms could be dealt with, but the underlying problems were malnutrition. And the, the doctors were concerned about it, and I had asked, if the lack of food was a problem, why didn't they prescribe food? And they said they didn't have the budget to do that. I suggested then if the Department of Agriculture could set up clinic or set up commissaries within these uh, neighborhood clinics and stock them with foods that the doctors would in effect prescribe, would that help? And of course they said yes, because <laughs> that overcomes the big uh, financial barrier. So I had gone to my office and uh, pulled the staff together and discussed 
whether we could stock the clinics, whether we could build the clinics, and it became evident very quickly that we had the authority to do that, plus the, the funding to, for the food. We set the program up then as a demonstration with, um, I forget the time, 10 or 12 commissaries located in various urban centers around the United States. So that was the first phase of the WIC program. How do you see the WIC program and its sort of philosophy fitting with the school lunch program and the food stamps program? How did the WIC program look at hunger in a different way? Well, I think one of the things that, that we did in creating the food policy in the United States, is, that's essentially what we did in, 19, in the 1960s, was to define hunger in a way that you could develop programs then to address it. We defined hunger as a condition affecting individuals in specific social groups, uh, families, children away from home and schools, and mothers and infants and young children up to age five. All of these are groups that have very specific and very distinct hunger problems or hunger issues. They're all related to poverty, but families without food stamps would go hungry. I mean, look at, look at the, what we have today, where uh, we're spending 85 to 90 billion dollars on food stamps. There are 40 million Americans today that are participating in the food stamp program. And you can imagine the hunger conditions that would exist now if we didn't have the food stamp program. Uh, child nutrition programs, the school meals. We've got 30 some million children in schools that participate daily in school meals. Uh, we're spending $14 billion a year there. And on WIC, we have, well, almost 8, billion, eight million children and mothers, children, and infants. And I think the cost of close to $8 billion a year. When you look at the particular situation that mothers face, it's very different than what we think of in terms of child nutrition. This situation was sort of in the back of my mind when we got the program going. If you look at conditions where famine exists, one of the hallmarks of famine is the uh, struggle that mothers have to try to ensure the survival of, uh, of her children. And the studies on famine all find examples of this situation where the the mothers will sell almost everything and do almost everything to ensure that their child has enough to eat to survive. If we're going to have a program that deals with the problems that were evident in 1965, 66, where children and mothers were both malnourished and were ill because of a lack of an adequate diet, that there's a responsibility you know, that we have as a society to uh, assist in this very significant period. Because from infant up to age five, the child is most vulnerable because the brain is growing at a much different rate up to age five 
than, uh, than it does after that period. So for all of these different reasons, the WIC program fulfills uh, a social responsibility that can't be met by any of the other food programs. lunch program, which serves nearly 30 million children every day, is undergoing an overhaul. In October of 2009, an Institute for Medicine panel made a set of recommendations for improving the national school lunch and breakfast programs. We spoke with a member of that panel, Rosemary Diedrichs, Director of Nutrition for Minneapolis Public Schools, to find out how the new standards were developed and what changes to expect in school lunch. The National Academies of Science Institute of Medicine was retained by USDA to look at the current nutrition standards and <clears throat> to, to bring them into line with the dietary guidelines and to make them simpler and to be cost effective or cost neutral if we could. And so those were the three basic tenets that we had to work with from USDA. So a panel was empowered under Dr. Virginia Stallings out of the University of Pennsylvania. So you'll find if you look at the report that it is divided up into two phases, phase one and phase two. So phase one was to look at the beliefs or the values that we looked at, the charge from USDA, and the methodology that would be used to get to the correct nutrition standards. The methodology for the Institute of Medicine is very basic and very important. Nothing can be considered if it doesn't have scientific evidence that is peer-reviewed. It has to be scientific. So, for example, you'll find in a lot of reports from IOM, there's no mention at all of um, sweeteners, non-sugar sweeteners in in foods because there's no scientific evidence to back that up. There is scientific evidence to back up non-sugar sweeteners in beverages, but not in foods. So the Institute remains silent on anything that doesn't have a scientific basis behind it. So the process became how to simplify the existing regulations and get to the nutrients that were needed for children. The first thing we did was the nutritionists and the food scientists in the group and the dietitians created the nutrition standards based on 24 essential nutrients. And that would have been really ungainly to try to track 24 nutrients. So, and we knew most people would not have the ability to do that or even the computers and the software to do that. That, that would be asking a lot. So to simplify it, we went to one food-based program. There used to be a food-based uh, meal pattern, an enhanced food-based meal pattern, and a nutrient-based meal pattern. That's what exists now in USDA. The, what the recommendation says is let's go to one food-based, ba food and if you provide these foods in these servings over a week, the nutrients will follow. There are always going to be children at one end who don't get enough of the nutrients. There are always going to be children at the other end who get too many. And what you want to do is find the optimum in the middle. And what 
target do we set that these that the most children in the United States will get the benefits? So that's what we did. We analyzed menus. We then we took those menus and revised them according to the nutrient values we wanted to achieve, the nutrient nutrient targets. And then we reassessed that, and then we developed a meal pattern for the week that would encompass all of those nutrients, and then we created sample menus. The, the differences in the old methodology and the new are that one, one way to do things, much simpler. The, the only things you really track now are calories and saturated fat and sodium. The, the fat content was changed. In USDA, it used to be 30% of calories or less from fat. Now it's 35 to match the dietary guidelines from nine, uh, 2005. And 10% of saturated fat. The most difficult thing, I think, for operators is going to be that there's now a calorie cap for each age group. Before, there was a minimum calorie. But with the obesity factor, now there's a maximum calorie for each age group. But then we had to figure out, well, if you have K through 8 in one building and you have two age groups uh, by USDA, so we had to merge and have ranges for calories for the different age groups. And from that point, we developed the menu saying, if you serve leafy green vegetables three times a week and orange vegetables two times a week and this many servings of fruit and this much protein, then you have a meal pattern over a week that, that will be... Quite, I think quite easy to follow when people get the hang of it. But I've heard horror stories from people who, I mean, the report is, what, 800, 600 pages? And I think people got scared and said, oh, we have to track 24 nutrients now. No, 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 no. No, you don't. It's really simpler. The sodium is going to be a challenge because the sodium recommendation is extremely low. But the recommendation says it should be achieved in increments over 10 years which is going to give industry plenty of time to develop the recipes and the ingredients that they need to reach that sodium target. Cornbread, butter beans, and you across the table. Eating beans and making love as long as I have you both. Throwing corn and cotton too, and when the day is over, Ride a mule and cut the fool and love getting all over. Goodbye, don't you cry, I'm going to Louisiana. To buy a coon dog and a big fat hog and marry Susanna. Sing song, ding dong, I'll take a trip to China. Cornbread, butter beans, and back to North Carolina. And cornbread, butter beans, and One tool to make school lunches healthier and support the local economy are farm-to-school programs. IATP's Joanne Birkenkamp is working with Minnesota lunch ladies and farmers to expand farm to school. We asked her about the state of farm to school in Minnesota and how farm to school programs fit into the Child Nutrition Act up for reauthorization this year. With the Child Nutrition Act up for reauthorization this year, how does farm to school fit into the Child Nutrition Act? 
The Child Nutrition Act uh, governs most of the school lunch program. Some elements of it are also uh, included in the Farm Bill, but the Child Nutrition Act is really the driving um, piece of legislation behind the National School Lunch Program. And Farm to School figures in in a couple of ways. There are currently three bills in motion that pertain to Farm to School, primarily around, uh, for instance, creating grant opportunities for school districts and others to apply for financial support for Farm to School activities around the country. The chief challenge is getting those sorts of um, programs funded. And a number of years ago, some legislation was passed. It was not funded. Um, and this year, we're hoping for a different outcome. What's the state of Farm to School in Minnesota? Farm to School is growing very rapidly here in Minnesota. For instance, uh, we did a survey recently with the Minnesota School Nutrition Association, which is the Association of School Lunch Professionals uh, in the state of Minnesota, and we determined that the number of districts participating in Farm to School around the state has more than doubled um, just in the last 15 months. About 15 months ago, we identified around 30 school districts that had some level of farm-to-school activity. Uh, just last week, we identified 69. Wow. So we're very pleased to see those numbers escalating so quickly. What are some of the ongoing challenges in implementing more farm-to-school programs around the state? Um, among the main challenges we see with farm-to-school is Fundamentally, it is quite a different way of operating, kind of a different philosophy than school lunch uh, typically has had. Over the decades, school lunch has become very highly regulated. It's very much focused on commodity foods obtained through centralized procurement situations. As part of the federal school lunch program, the federal government procures a whole range of commodities ranging from ground beef to chicken to some fruits and vegetables to other types of products that they buy in very large quantities and provide to school districts. And that provides a significant portion of the school food that you see coming into school districts around the country. So that is part of the driving force of it. What are farm to school programs doing to help schools that may lack funding? Our emphasis is on enabling as many different types of schools to participate in farm to school as possible. So it's important for people to, to know that schools are quite um, varied, quite heterogeneous in their school food service environments. So some schools can actually produce food from scratch. Others really cannot uh, do that kind of thing and have to rely on product, for instance, that's already pre-cut, carrots that are um, cut into coins, lettuce that comes in shredded. And so you need to work with those different kinds of school environments to link them then with sources of local foods that they can work with. So some di districts, for instance, will be able to purchase uh, food directly from farms, whole by the case, for instance. Other school districts will need to get that product through a, a distributor that would buy and aggregate that product and then pre-cut it so that the schools have a product that's ready to use. And our own feeling is we hope that Farm to School will benefit as many school children as possible. We also hope that it will open a market for as many small and medium-sized and sustainably oriented farmers as possible. So we look for strategies that can work in a whole range of contexts. So that means really understanding how schools operate. It means training for food service staff. It means coaching uh, to help them figure out how to implement farm to school and weave it into their menus. And then it also means really helping ensure that the kids are learning about the food that they're eating and how that it's grown. And that means um, it's really important to have a parallel effort that's around education and communication and outreach with the students as well as parents and teachers and others.
So it sounds like an entire systems change in education. We believe systems change is really what you need to shoot for. Uh, and that's one of the reasons, for instance, why we partner with the Minnesota School Nutrition Association, which is active around the state, um, because we believe it's really important to enable as many schools to participate as possible. And that's the level of change that we're aiming at. As you mentioned, there are often uh, budgetary challenges that schools live with. In the area that we live in now, those budget pressures are even more intense than they have been historically. So we emphasize farm-to-school strategies that work within schools' existing budgets. For instance, none of the districts I'm aware of have a, a separate source of funding, for instance, to subsidize the cost of food. They're all making it work within their existing budgets. And that's critical because when it works within the existing budget environment, that's when you get change that becomes woven into how they do business. That's a form of change that's sustainable. And we believe that's critical because we really need kids to be getting these healthier choices throughout the time that they're in school. We need that change to be sustained. Radio Sustain is a project of IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Find us on the web at iatp.org. Radio Sustain is produced by Ben Lilliston. Radio Sustain's engineer is Patrick Sai. The music on the program was Tall Fiddler by Deo, The Loneliest City by Ah Holly Family, Cornbread and Butter Beans by the Carolina Chocolate Drops, and Arrivals Departures by Vox Vermillion. I'm Andrew Ranallo. Thanks for listening.